When you have a problem, Fox 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard. We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on. How can Fox 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com. My name is Bruce Reyes-Chow, and this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything else that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for me to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends. All right, well, welcome to episode 48 of BRC and Friends, a podcast where I talk with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers who are committed to making the world a more thoughtful, loving, and just place. Today, I welcome to my show my friend, uh, Terrell Carter, who is the second time has been on the show. I think you might actually be my first repeat person. Kind of weird, but welcome. Terrell's a pastor, nonprofit leader, former university administrator from St. Louis, Missouri, and is the author of a new book, which is coming out at the end of this month, and this month is April, uh, April 2021, called Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology, Gospel of Generosity and Justice, which I'm very, very excited excited about. But uh, before we dive into the book and talk about some other unique things, uh, would love uh, to, if you would just go ahead and introduce yourself. Who are you? Uh, where are you? What are important things for listeners to know about you? It's all hey, you. Go for it. Thank you for having me on again. I really enjoyed it the last time, and I really obviously believe we're going to enjoy it again. I am uh, a pastor in St. Louis, Missouri. I am uh, just recently uh, took a job as president and executive director of an organization called Rise Community Development. It's an organization that makes better neighborhoods through uh, building projects. So we build housing uh, from 12 single family units to 300 unit apartment buildings. We uh, consult and help with technical assistance for other community agencies. And we also consult with city governments. Anything that it takes to make communities and neighborhoods better, we do that. Prior to that, I was vice president and chief diversity officer of a Christian university called Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. It's about 45 miles outside of St. Louis. And prior to that, I was a seminary professor. I was an assistant professor of practical theology and a program director. Uh, And the rest of my career prior to that was in construction. And I was even a police officer for five years in my early 20s. So uh, a really, really varied experience, uh, professional experience in life, but I think it's all part of what God has used to shape me and make me to the person that I am. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, and and I think, and I've shared with you before this, my conversations with people here, part of why I like to do this is, yeah, we're all going to kind of share about our projects and our books and things that are coming out, which I think is important, but also that we're all like, we're, we're complex human beings as well with different interests and different stories. And we've all kind of got here through different paths. And I think breaking down all of this one dimensionalism is just such a, a lovely part, but I do want to talk about the book. So um, again, I haven't had a chance to read it. I get to kind of pull the Stephen Colbert. I didn't read the book, but I can read the intro that is put out on all the, on the book places. So this is, it's just fascinating. So folks listen to professor and pastor Troll Carter unites scholarly critique with practical wisdom in this new book that exposes the racist and classist assumptions entangled in the rugged individualism of what he calls bootstrap theology, dismantling both the impossible idiom of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and the social theory of Marx's Protestant work ethic. Carter challenges the academy and church to advance a more faithful gospel 
one that extends a spirit of generosity and a call to social justice for all God's people, especially those who are the most vulnerable. So like anybody who writes a book, you got to, I guess, a bold statement, right? This is a pretty bold uh, thing to say that you're going to tackle in this book. Um, But tell us a little bit about, uh, first, I, I always like to know authors like, why this book? Like, what drew you into writing a book? What what made you go through the work to develop it, pitch it, and write it? Like, where where that come from? And then what what's 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 the pitch? What's the what's the book about? So go for it. Anyone who's read any of my books will find a common theme. The common theme is trying to help people understand those who are different from them, especially Christians, especially white Christians. Obviously, I'm African American. Uh, but I have been raised in ministry in truthfully a white context. I went to seminary, graduate school, I've earned you know a couple of different doctorate degrees. Uh, the point is, is that all of that training has been within white context. And the thing that was always at the forefront of that is that none of the or the vast majority of the professors did not come from where I came from, look like me or have my life experience. The vast majority of authors that we read, no idea about the Black or the African-American experience. And so it was a certain level of frustration that we value this very particular lens of theology and Christianity and church life without uh, recognizing that there are other ways to understand it and to interact with it. And so you you combine that with all the things that have happened over the past few years of African-Americans being shot, unarmed African-Americans being shot and killed by police and all the response from that. And typically, the response that I heard from white Christians was, well, why can't black people just do what they're told? Why can't black people just get along? Why can't black people just do what's expected of them? And my response is always, wait a minute, you haven't even asked why African-Americans respond in the way that they respond. And so one of the other things that came up as part of all of this that I kept hearing from white Christians was essentially, you know, it, it, it really goes back to the election of Donald Trump. So none of this tells you whether I'm a Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. Donald Trump does not fit what we say as Christians, we believe, plain and simple. Uh, And for so many white evangelicals to get behind him and to say, oh, this is God's man for this time is a clear indication in my book that we don't understand what scripture talks about. And so in the book, I start out by saying there is a disconnect with what we believe politically and socially from what we say we believe and understand the Bible to be teaching. And so part of the book is to be able to show that here go the principles that the Bible teaches very clearly, protect the poor and the vulnerable, treat women with respect and love and honor, care for others. It's very clear that God said to Israel in the scriptures of Israel, the Old Testament, that don't ever forget that you all were once enslaved yourself. So when you get to this land of freedom that they get to in Joshua, the promised land, God specifically told them, don't forget about your past experiences because you were once a slave. So when you see someone else in need, help them. Don't harvest all of your land. Leave some on the outskirts for the widows, for children, for the foreigner who's trying to make a life for themselves. But unfortunately, in the United States, we do the exact opposite. We don't remember that we came from a different country and that, you know, we don't even want to talk about the process of how America was colonized, but it's this idea that God has somehow ordained that everything that we do is right and it's by power and might versus 
compassion and loving God first and then loving others with all of our heart, you know, as we are supposed to, we take a different kind of aspect. So that's truthfully the origin of the book. Right. So um, uh, remind us again about kind of what is your theological background and kind of denominational space? Because I think that does lend in some, because I come out of the Presbyterian Church USA. I come out of a really progressive congregation before I even knew what progressive meant. Like I, I got, you know, I left my church and went out and they're like, oh, you're at that progressive church. I'm like, that was, that was just church for me. Like I, I didn't know any different. Um, but how would you describe kind of your, like your formative theological space that you kind of maybe, maybe grew up in or see yourself mostly speaking into? Like what would be, how would you describe those contexts? My background is I come from the conservative African-American Baptist tradition. So what most people don't understand is historically African-Americans, Black people are conservative. And so I was raised in a conservative Baptist, Black Baptist tradition where we believed the Bible and we still do believe the Bible as God's word, that it comes from God, that it's all those things. Um, And then I left uh, the Black Baptist tradition and then went into a fundamentalist tradition, not knowing exactly what fundamentalism was. (laughs) It was uh, the first college, the first Bible college and seminary that I went to. Uh, But the thing that I quickly learned and understood in that tradition was, again, that if you didn't think exactly like they thought, if you asked any questions, then you were a heretic in essence. Now, nobody ever called me a heretic to my face, but it was very clear that Asking questions and thinking slightly different from them was not approved. And the other thing that I quickly learned was my concerns, my life experience was not prominent to them or as important to them. Now, they would say, oh, no, we care about you. But when I would ask questions or push back against police violence, uh, again, I was raised in a black family, black community. uh, And my life experience, although I was a police officer as an adult, uh, growing up, my experiences with police were not good. But in that fundamentalist tradition, the responsibility was always placed on the minorities versus the people with power. And so anytime you push back against that, you were, again, not living correctly. And uh, there was a very clear uh, everything had to be a specific way. So uh, unfortunately, I was married very early in life and got divorced very early. And that disqualified me from doing anything. And no one ever asked the question, well, why did you get divorced in the first place? Well, my ex-wife left the house. My ex-wife, you know, allowed my son to be abused at the hands of one of her boyfriends, my ex-wife, all these different things that are not acceptable. Mm -hmm. That was still held against me, even though I was the one who did the honorable thing. I eventually got custody of my son and raised him. That still disqualified me. And so those kinds of things didn't make sense. It wasn't until I began to fellowship with people who the words you just used were liberal (laughs) <laughs> and they started saying and asking the question, like, isn't there a different way to think about this? Isn't there a different way to, to look at this? Not just because of tradition, but when you get a better understanding of what it means, what did it mean to the original readers? What did the Bible, the scriptures of Israel mean to the original readers? Some of that applies. Some of that doesn't. Understand what applies. Understand what doesn't. But also, you know, the Bible is not a rule book. It's a book about God's story, about God's love for all that God created and how God wants us to be in relationship with our creator. So that's a totally different vantage or viewpoint of God yeah, is angry yeah. and everything is based on God's anger versus no, God loves you and God wants to be in relationship with you and God is doing everything to be in relationship with you. So when I started understanding that as God's story, it changed my theology and my way of thinking, period. And it has formed me and shaped me as a leader now. And so are you, do you still find because you've had experiences in those other spaces that they, 
are more apt to hear you or have you just become a traitor and you're like you're not I, I always find like sometimes the communities out of which you come are more open sometimes about things or if you've like totally turned away from what they would perceive as the right way then you're like you really get ostracized i mean how do you interact with those spaces now are, are you able to step into those spaces or those spaces that you're not involved with as much anymore so in the conservative white spaces that I used to be friends with, I have peripheral relationships still. You know, we can't talk about scripture. We can't talk about you know, <laughs> loving everyone yeah. regardless of sexuality. We can't have those conversations. And right, we can talk right. about sports. We can talk about all those other things. But <laughs> we can't have a yeah. conversation about scripture. And in the black spaces, the challenge I face is because I've been trained in white institutions, there's a certain level, uh, of, yeah. a certain level of distrust towards me because, oh, well, you now yeah. speak in a way that they speak. And it's like, no, I just have learned a different way of saying it. I still know our lingo. I still, you know, if I'm preaching in a black church, right. you have to right. end the sermon with Jesus died and rose again. Uh, every sermon has to somehow interact with that. So there are challenges. I'm, I Truthfully, I feel like I'm caught in between the middle. And that's not a complaint. That's not a woe is me. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. something that I recognize every single day that I have to. But I think that's part of the blessing is that God has helped me develop a language set that crosses over multiple. So, again, if I go into a room of conservatives, I know the language right. and I can speak it and I can then try to introduce uh, less conservative, you know, the, you know, language and theology. And when I go into an African-American or black context, I know how to rearrange the language in a way that still is relevant and speaks to them as well. Mm -hmm. Great. Awesome. Okay. So about the book, who do you think is going to be like, Oh, I really want to read this. Like who, who are you trying to target? Like what was when did your writing? I know whenever I've written, it's like, okay, I have this kind of generalized group of people that I'm thinking about. I hope a lot of people are interested in it, but so who, who's your group? Like who's, who are you, who are you writing to really out of for your current book? Truthfully, I'm writing to the right white evangelical church, and that unfortunately is a lot of what I write, who I write to, because uh, you know, as you know, I've written multiple books. So I've written books on race and reconciliation and policing, and it's always again in response to this idea: why can't people just do what they're supposed to? This is what we understand the world to be like. <laughs> if you don't follow it, then you're wrong. And so I write to try to help that group understand: no, there is a different way to understand this and to interact with it. So I suspect there are people in those groups, like if they're, if, you know, if somebody's like hardcore, you know, this is, I'm not going there. Like they're probably not even gonna pick it up. Right. But like, there's probably people in there that are like, have these inklings or these kinds of things. And like, Hey, I've been thinking, and I, I almost, you know, my wife and I wrote a parenting book and the, the title was uh, rule number two, don't be an asshat. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't a religious a really nice, book at all. That's a really nice rule to have. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, just like, don't be a jerk, right? But I was like, so we're we're thinking about kind of PR marketing things. Like, well, what if we we make a brown paper bag cover so, or some, you know, some religious cover so that people could read it in church and not feel like they're going to get in trouble? I kind of feel like something like this would be like people within those contexts who have been yearning for like just having a nudge that maybe faith and tradition and scripture can be read differently might pick it up and be like, oh yeah, see, it can be. I mean, does that feel like like that kind of person would would gravitate towards what you're writing about? I would hope, number one, you know, most people don't understand that most books are not named by the author. They are named by the publisher. And so I had- That's true too. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. I had, I, hear a, you. I had a different title that was less, 
you know, theological in its title. Uh, but I really, I mean, I like the bootstrap theology title uh, because it clearly is what I'm trying to speak to. But um, it, my hope is, is that anyone who is interested in understanding that life is not always what we think it is, you know, there's this idea. And it, again, it usually, so let's, I, I hate to keep pointing back to Donald Trump. But there's this idea that Donald yeah, Trump right. bought into that, you know, that helped to to bring forward to the to the forefront. People think that certain people within the United States are getting things that they don't deserve. And it's up to really good Americans to make sure that everybody works the same, that everybody, you know, puts in the same amount of work so they can get all get the same kind of benefits. Well, that's not the reality. I, I have too many examples from life that I have. Again, none of this is bragging, but I have multiple earned doctorates. And I'm still behind the eight ball. Chris Rock made a joke. For those who don't know, Chris Chris Rock is a comedian. And he once said, this is how hard it is to be black. I'm rich and white people will not take my place. White people don't want to be me. It doesn't matter how rich I am as a black man. (laughs) Everybody understands (laughs) that. Right. And so for those who understand that joke, this book is for them. It's this idea that it doesn't matter how hard we work. You have to be connected. You have to be, you know, you have to have opportunities given to you. You have to have all these other things that in order to make life successful. Now, I'm not saying that you can sit around. You do have to work. You do have to go to school. You do have to all those things. But we should not base our perception and a person's value on where they are economically in life, because the pandemic has proven that to everyone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, life is unfair. Things happen. And. We some we most of the time sit on the sidelines judging other people, not understanding what they've experienced. But hopefully, and I hate to say it that way, but I hope people understand what I'm meaning, is that the pan, things like the pandemic have made the playing field somewhat even, not fully even, but has made it somewhat even. And other people can now understand what, you know, poor people and minorities have experienced. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, the myth of meritocracy is is so evident. I mean, any of us who have raised you know, kids and have had to think about college and kind of that, that whole, I think just farce of a institutional system, like these games you have to play about college, even where you look at these, you know, admission rates and all that. And you realize, wait, this like, what, like what's going on? One of my, one of our friends said admissions offices are actually their marketing offices basically. Right. So how, you know, how you can get people in and out. And, and of course we played the game. All three of my kids went to small liberal arts schools and did the whole thing, but I think Dave also as they've they've gone through this. We don't want dad's connections. We don't want dad's relationships to influence what we're going to do because they're like, I want to do it on my own. And we're having to like, what's that balance between relying on community and stepping and and reinforcing this kind of privileged space? I mean, I think that is a huge you know issue for our kids to begin to think about. But thinking about this bootstrap theology. Think. How does that come into play in the church? Like, what does it mean? So, if, why do I care? Like, if I'm a church person, okay, fine. Not everybody has to. Not everybody earns what they get. I get it. That's fine. But does does Jesus care about that? Like, why why should I, as a church person, care about other people's how they get what they get? If you get what you get, great. Like, you know, it's kind of prosperity gospel stuff. I mean, why why should I care? As a as a, a good black Baptist pastor, uh, I was always raised that you don't write anything or preach a sermon without you. You take a text first, and then you build your sermon from there. 
And the text that this book is built on is the second Thessalonians passage where Paul says, if a man is not willing to work, a man should not eat. And we know that throughout history, Mm. we have Calvin who then took some of that theology and had a conversation with it. The challenge is everyone has misinterpreted. Let me rephrase that. There have been multiple times when people have misinterpreted (laughs) that passage. You could say everyone. You might as well be bold. (laughs) So the challenge is we don't recognize the background to who Paul was writing to and why he even wrote that in the first place. The church was experiencing a level of frustration and fear and doubt because they were expecting that Jesus would have come back by that time. And so people were living in a way that they thought was right. Oh, we don't want to start building wealth. We don't want to start accumulating things. We don't want to do any of those things because we're not going to have it very long because Jesus is going to come back, get his church, and we won't need it right. anyway. So why, why bother do? Why bother doing it if if it's going to be gone? Right. And so Paul was trying to temper that, recognizing that okay, this has been years. We don't really know or fully understand how all this is going to go. So we have to still live our lives as productive Christians who are taking care of each other and still spreading God's love and God's message. All those things. So don't just sit around being a dead weight to other people. Live your life like God has said and. You just be ready when when Jesus comes back. And obviously, members of that that church, that fellowship, some of them were taken advantage. The bigger point, though, is, is that we have taken that isolated incident where he says, don't if a man's not willing to work, he shouldn't eat. And we've tried to apply that to everything. And so we fail to recognize that, you know, uh, uh, someone on the street who is homeless is not just because they're lazy and it's not just because they are addicted to drugs. There is a legitimate mental health crisis going on in the United States that affects people's ability to function as regular human, you know, as what we would consider regular human beings. I'm on the board of directors for an organization called the St. Louis Mental Health Board, and we give money every year. We give millions of dollars every year to programs and services to help those with mental health challenges. And the data is stunning. It's scary how many people are affected by mental health challenges and mental health diagnoses. But we don't pay attention to that. What we automatically do is assume is this person has made bad decisions in life. And so I shouldn't have to pay for their bad decisions. Or we have people coming to the border who want to come into the United States. Well, they should work as hard as I did in order to get what they get. Well, we don't even acknowledge that, that the reason why, and this is going to be a very general statement. There's there's an idea that white people have a head start on everyone else because they came to this land, they slaughtered Native Americans, they took, you know, the land that belonged. The the laws that our nation was built upon are to benefit white people and to hinder everyone else. That's not a political statement. That is a reality. And unfortunately, we forget that most of the wealth that was built that has now been handed down from generation to generation has given a certain segment of our population the advantage and has disadvantaged everyone else. So when a white person says, oh, no, I've worked for everything I have. Well, you may have worked, but I and my ancestors weren't even allowed to work to get what you have. So the playing field hasn't even been level in the first place for it, you know, since the inception of this this country. So part of the reason in writing this book is to bring those things to the forefront. And I, I concentrate on three groups of people in the book. Uh, minorities, African-American, black and brown people, but there are more minorities than that. But with the culture and the temperature of our nation, it revolves around black and brown people. How we treat women 
you know, we have never fully affirmed the equality or equity for women, especially in the church. Uh, and let's not even start talking about, you know, conservative churches who treat women as, you know, you know, you can be around, but you can be silent. You have to be silent. And then the poor, well, we don't know why they're poor. We just know that they are poor. And because they are poor, that that automatically disqualifies them from any kind of compassion that we should or could give them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so timely, right? Because I think folks are at all different levels of entering into this conversation. And I think there have to be you know, lots of lots of stuff out there to help people give give people some language and some work and some some credible kind of background, especially those who like turn to scripture first and they want like that in depth scriptural basis for what they believe. I think this is really really important. So, folks, we've been we've been talking again um, about Charles' new book, uh, "Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology: Gospel of Generosity and Justice," comes out at the end of April twenty twenty one. We're going to move on to a couple of things. We're going to we're are going to talk about some fun things as well, but when you have a problem, Box 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard. We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on. How can Box 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com. I can't I can't not talk about the fact that you were a police officer before and if you're listening to this later on, we are right in the midst of the the trials around the killing of George Floyd. We just had the shooting of Dante Wright in Minnesota as well. Um, today or yesterday, the video of a 13-year-old in Chicago, Adam Toledo, being shot was released. Um, we we have uh, Indianapolis just this morning or last late last night. There was another a mass shooting. I mean, there's just we're we're in this like week of you know, there's always gun violence and always violence and everything going on in the world, but for some reason, right this week. So that's kind of what we're sitting in. And so you were a police officer. How have you responded to all of this? And you've, you've kind of alluded to a little bit of around the relationship between uh, the black community and law enforcement, but wh- how, what's been your voice? Like we've been now a, a year into this intensity of uh, after the George Floyd killing. Like how have you participated in these conversations as a former police officer? So I've written two books, one called Walking the Blue Line, A Police Officer Turned Community Activist Provides Solutions to the Racial Divide, and a second book called Police on a Pedestal, Responsible Policing in a Culture of Worship. And I'm trying to help people understand that policing was not designed to help people. Policing was designed to serve the system of policing. Policing in the United States began as a way, literally, so this is no hyperbole, no, this is not any editorial, yep, editorial yep. comment. Bring Police, it, yep. Policing yep. was started to, uh, number one, protect white people from Native Americans who were trying to recover the land that had been stolen from them. And then secondarily, it became the, the vehicle to capture escaped slaves and return them either to their masters or to the, the criminal justice system. Policing was never started to help people, especially not minority people. And so I try to get people to understand that the system of policing has to be changed. Uh, We always say that, oh, no, it's just a few bad apples. No, the system is the bad apple, period. Yeah. And it's, you know, I in in the Police on a Pedestal book, I give the example of when African-Americans were freed and, you know, Emancipation Proclamation and then the end of slavery, we, the United States, had to figure out a way to return or to continue to control black bodies and brown bodies. And what they did is they began to develop laws that stated, you know, for example, a black person could not walk down the street without having proof that they were going to their job 
or that they were gainfully employed. And if they didn't have that proof on them, then they could immediately be arrested and then sent to prison or sent to back to a, a plantation. Eventually, that law transitioned into what we call vagrancy laws. It's the laws that say, well, you can't stand in a location without a purpose. And if you stand in a location without a purpose, hmm. a police officer can stop you, detain you and arrest you and doesn't have to give any reason. You didn't have to commit a crime. It's just the fact that you are standing around doing nothing. And the other challenge is, is what is our perception of black and brown people? And I'd say in the book that most of us get our information about crime and about African-American criminality from television, not because we've experienced mm -hmm. it before ourselves, right. but because that's what we've seen. And it's been so prevalent and pervasive that we believe whatever we're told about black and brown people, and that becomes a reality. And so we don't understand that most black and brown people's experiences are when police show up, something negative happens to them, no matter what they do. We have entirely too many videos, evidence of people doing what they were supposed to do and still being hurt, harmed or killed by police officers. And the police get to say, oh, well, I was afraid or I made a mistake or this is what I thought. And so we don't ask why black people are afraid. We just ask, well, why don't they do what they're told? Well, because they're afraid, because no matter what they do, they will get shot or killed. I mean, I can give an example. I was a police officer from 1997 to 2002. I live in the neighborhood of the, dis in a, the district that I last patrolled. I, for a mm -hmm. season, after leaving the police department, was regularly getting pulled over by people that I had previously worked with who forgot my face or forgot who I was. And I had to start telling them, like, look, I belong here. I drive this route every single day to go pick up my daughter from school. I know I don't look like I belong here, but I belong here. This is my address. My Please tell you and tell your partner to stop pulling me over as well. There's this thing that that's in the DNA of policing that if somebody doesn't look like they belong there, then you need to find out why they're there versus assuming that this person has the right to be wherever they want to and they're not yeah. violating. Uh, but it's not just police. It's the citizens as well, because half the time oh, yeah. oh, police yeah. are responding to a person's phone call. And how many times have we seen, oh, well, this person doesn't look like they belong there and, you know, something horrible happens. We have to change the system. We have to change the way people perceive African-Americans, black and brown people uh, and minorities just in general. So you're not being asked to come speak at any police functions, are you? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm one of those people like, I don't I don't really care when people kind of come to some realization about what happens in the United States around race. I'm just glad they get there. But there does become at some point, how can you not know? Like, how many videos do you need to see? How many things do you need to see? And to kind of know that these are even these are not even all the things, right? These are just the ones that happen to catch some, they happen to catch some wave and got shown. But how many times do we have to see? I mean, this, this. I, I refuse to watch a video of Adam Toledo being shot, 13-year-old, and, you know, like, I don't need to see any more videos of black and brown bodies being shot. I mean, I just don't need to do that. And, but, you know, it's this 13-year-old kid. Yeah. Was he doing something wrong? Sure. Doesn't matter. Doesn't deserve to be shot. And, you know, it was clearly one of those is like his hands were up. There was no, like, how many times do we to see that these things happen and it's not just individuals? Like, it is this systematic piece. Well, I mean, what do you what do you think is the answer? Right, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, just think back to January the 6th. 
you had how many people rush the Capitol? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> nothing happened to them, literally. But you have black people who march peacefully and they are, you know, no, there was not significant or adequate uh, patrol there because it was a group of white people who supported Trump. Let's just be honest. But when a handful of black people show up, we come out with riot gear and we come out with everything ready, arm to the hilt. I'll give you an example. Here recently in St. Louis or last year, a police officer shot and killed a, a black guy. Uh, he did it and it was all videotaped and he was found not guilty. And so there began to be multiple protests. Well, eventually the protests grew bigger, all those things. Well, one night there was a protest and police showed up and beat multiple people. Well, unbeknownst to them, and they had undercover police officers in the group in the of the protesters who were trying to, and one of the black undercover police officers was beaten by his coworkers. And part of it was caught on, on phone video. They destroyed his phone. And when they finally, when somebody showed up and finally recognized him, they tried to rush him out to, you know, and they, uh, there was this whole behind the scenes where they called him, apologized, all those different things. In addition to that, the day of the police officers that actually beat him all texted each other and had these conversations oh, yeah. via social media saying, hey, I can't wait to beat somebody tonight when I do it or when you do it, just make sure you have an old white guy who says that the black person tried to attack you first. All of this stuff was recorded and it's all been found. Two of the police officers were found not guilty. It's it's like, how do you not? Yeah. But it's because that's what yeah. we we will protect police officers no matter what, because and I, again, I talk about this in the police on the pedestal book. Yeah. We want we we view people in a certain way and then we want other people to handle our problems or handle the things that we fear. And as long as you're handling the things that we fear, right. we will give you carte blanche to do what you want to do. Right. Right. Make it invisible to me. I mean, our entire incarceration system, right? If you can just make, make all of that happen somewhere else. So I don't have to see it. Then I don't need to worry about it. And I don't need to feel responsible for it. And I can just pretend that I'm, I mean, my, my middle kid is, uh, is, has been really involved with, you know, it kind of abolition and of the mass incarceration system and everything. And it's just opened my eyes that even more, like I had a very general, you know, kind of generic progressive view about our, our, about mass incarceration, but my kids have really drawn me deeper into this. And, you know, I think that's a, that's exactly what they talk about. If you make people invisible, then you don't have to think about it and Here's let us like then. Yeah. No, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for cutting you off. Here's what I say to, to white people, especially white evangelical, white Christians, so most of them or many of them don't have a lot of black friends or they have black friends who fit a very particular model, you know, very affluent, have gone to white schools, high up in the echelon of work life, all those different things. You want to understand what it's like to be a minority. Find a white couple that has adopted a black or brown child and ask them what their experiences are like being the parent of that black or brown child and how their lives have changed. And how people respond to them and to that child after they find out that that black or brown child has a white parent. Life becomes completely different for them because yeah. they get to see how people yeah. perceive, you know, perceive their, their, their child. Yeah. Yeah. No. Right here. All right. So let's talk about something not quite as intense. <laughs> I mean, because part of the part of the reason I like doing the show and talking to people is that 
like like multiple things about our life can be true. Like we're, we we dive deep into our theological space. We talk about politics and ideology and all. And we also like there are things we enjoy. So let me just ask you, kind of these days, we're right, we're getting kind of the end of our time. But what are you what are you listening to these days? What are you reading and what are you watching? What do you what what are you listening to? Reading? What are you watching? I'm listening to over and over and over again the new Bruno Mars and Anderson Pock song. Uh, and I won't since this is a Christian. Uh, influenced podcast. I yeah, won't, it's I not won't. <laughs> okay. Well, no, it's, not. it's not. It's a song called. <laughs> it's a song called "Leave the Door Open." The bigger point, though, is is that. Oh yeah, uh, I've been. A I'd fan. sing it for you now, except my I, it'd be bad. It, yeah, it, I well, don't sing well. So the big the, the the thing though is those two boys are talented, and it that song takes me back to like the R and B music that I grew up with, and so. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so it's just really fun. It just reminds me of what how fun music can be. And I'm a musician. I play bass guitar and I've learned how to start playing drums as well. And so it just reminds me of how fun music can be. What am I reading? I'm reading a lot of, so I have been at my new job a month. And so for the last six years, I've been in academia. And so everything that I've been reading for the past six years is either about writing a book or a class I'm teaching or all those different things. But now that I'm back in community development, which again, I had done previously, I'm reading a lot to get reacclimated to community development, but also uh, how to address disparities in community development as it relates to how, you know, certain communities are developed and given resources and how certain communities are not. So I'm reading a book called The Color of Money, which talks about the history of banking in the United oh, yeah. States and how, um, wow, I mean, I hate to sound depressing, but again, the foundation of everything in our nation has been to privilege and advantage white people and to literally minimize the impact and ability of black and brown people. Uh, so I'm reading that book, but I'm also reading multiple business books. I'm reading some books on uh, how the brain works. I'm reading a book called Seven and a Half Lessons on the Mind. And it talks about how most of the things we thought about our brains in the past is probably not true. Like we don't have a lizard portion to our brain. We don't have all those different kinds of things, but our brains work completely different. And what does that mean? And then what am I watching? I really don't watch a lot of TV. Uh, I, you know, I do watch, like, I'm a big Doctor Who fan, but I watch all the old Doctor Who episodes. So I've- Okay, so Doctor <laughs> Who. I've tried, because mul- I have t- too many friends that are like, oh, Doctor Who, there's all this deep thought. I could not get into it. Then I then I watched, is it season 11, when they brought on um, the first female Doctor Who? Mm-hmm. And I and I got into it a little bit more, but it, I was like, okay, it's maybe it just needs a different voice. And I still, I just, I cannot get into it. Like, what, what about Doctor Who? Like, why do you, why do you love it? So I'm not even talking about the the newer, you know, 2000. I'm talking about the old, oh, 19- like the old school one, the old 1970s episodes with Tom Baker. That that it was my okay. twin. So I have a twin brother, and we, Doctor Who used to be broadcast on PBS, and it would be broadcast on Saturday night. And we would try to watch it, but we would be so scared of it. And now I'm an adult. I'm like, no, I, I need to go ahead and get into, you know, into this, or I want to get into this. So it's just, a lot of it is truthfully just nostalgia for me because the the scripts are bad, okay. the the special effects <laughs> are horrible, and the acting was is, production value is bad, and the acting is so cheesy. But it's a, you know, it's a, it's a way for me to get away from all this heavy thinking and writing that I do, yeah, yeah. and just to veg out and be you know, be a, uh, uh, eight, nine, 10, 11 year old all over again. When, you know, Doctor Who was being, uh, being, uh, shown on PBS when we were kids. Yeah. What's the last movie you've seen? 
Wow. Uh, Tenet uh, by, I forget the director's oh. name. So my son is, uh, he graduated from college last year with a degree in film production and script writing. And he is a, he, oh, okay. he wants to be a big budget film director himself. So I pay attention to the movies that he likes as a way to, you know, be able to talk to him about what's important to him. And so he loves the director of Tenet is one of his favorite directors. And it also had Denzel Washington's son in it. So, I mean, I wanted to like it from that aspect. Oh. And, it was, and it was a cool movie. It wasn't his best movie, uh, but it was still a yeah. still a, a good kind of like no brainer thrill ride. Like Doctor Who. <laughs> right. And I think it, it didn't come out at a weird time. So it didn't it actually didn't do as well as it needed to do and all that well, kind of thing. It was, but it was, it was I will say I would year. Yeah. Yeah, I always tell people, I'm like, who's your favorite actor and why is it not Denzel Washington? I mean, <laughs> I, that, that, I mean, I it's just, I don't understand how it could not be. You know what I learned about? So we might, I don't, I don't know, how, how old are you? I'm thir- uh, 47, 47. Okay, so I'm a little bit, I'm a little older than you, but, um, you know, when you were talking about music just a minute ago, so I, I grew up in Sacramento, California, kind of in kind of a the rougher part of Sacramento. I don't even know how you could, would describe it, but much more diverse than where I like was born and all that kind of stuff. And so I, the music I grew up with was not what all my early friends were. Like they were listening to, I don't know, like U2 and like, I was called white music. They listen to white music and I was listening to brown music. And uh, I, you know, my wife and I always like, okay, brown music test. Who is this? She's like, I don't know. And then she'll say white music test. Who is this? I'm like, David Bowie. Like that's not, she's like, that's not the answer to every white, white song. I'm like, nah, that's the only one I know. Right. <laughs> so I was, I grew up on like Lakeside, Dazman, Shalmar, like all that. You're speaking my language. So, like when I listen to, when I listen to Bruno Mars and I'm like, and my kids are like, this is great. I'm like, you know, it's, it is good. I love it. And I, I'm like, but this is, this sounds a lot like what I listened to when I was in high school. I mean, it's that he's got, he figured out how to sound like that in a modern way. And I, I just love it. I just, I, you know, I'm, I, we listen to Bruno Mars. I know more of his stuff probably better than I ever should. Cause there's part of me that wants to be Bruno Mars, like, in, in, you know, some some part of my psyche. But anyway, yeah, so I'm right right with you. Though I learned something about, you probably, you may have already known this, about the Gap Band's name. What about Do it? you know the history of the name? The history of the name is named after Black Wall Street mm-hmm. at, in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. That's the, I didn't, I had no idea that the name, one of my friends was like, I was today years old when I found out the Gap Band was named after this part. And I was like, I had no idea. I mean, was, I mean, I learn stuff all the time. Uh, one of my, I used to listen to the Gap Band all the time. I just got a, I just got a record player again, and so now I have like all these like old Commodores and been finding all this old records and. You're, again, you're, oh, man, you're speaking my language. Back. This is all on my playlist. My my playlist at the gym. Oh, I love it. My kids are like, oh, do we have to listen to Truly one more time? I guess, <laughs> and then we'll listen to. Then we're gonna listen to just once, and then shower me with your love, and, and easy then like Sunday fantastic morning. voyage, and easy. And there you go. It's all you. <laughs> you get it all, right? Oh man, that's so good. Well, I really appreciate you hanging out with me again. Uh, I assume you're writing another book at some point in the future, so you'll come back on and share that one. But you got a ways to go for this. Uh, can you tell people how they can get in touch with you? What are your handles and websites and all that kind of stuff? My website is terrellcarter.net, T-E-R-R-E-L-L-C-A-R-T-E-R.net. Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram at, at tcarterstl. Great. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for tuning in to this episode of BRC and Friends. Thanks again to Terrell Carver. Thank you for hanging out with me today. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. And hopefully one day I can have you on my podcast so we can talk about your book. That's Oh, yeah. So 
oh. pro- properly placed behind you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Got a little product placement. Uh, again, everyone, be sure to pick up his book uh, and others. Like if you just go onto any of the book places, you can see that uh, he's uh, written a bunch of stuff. Um, I'm going to go pick up the policing one. I'm really, int- I'm fascinated. You know, you know, whenever you see somebody who used to be a cop write on it, I'm always a little bit tentative. Like. Where is this going to land? Like, I had no idea where you kind of were on all this because I hadn't read it, but I'm going to I'm gonna go pick that up now and uh, and take a read. But uh, pick it up. And remember, uh, everybody, if you're listening, uh, in addition to going to your favorite podcast space of choice, you to subscribe, review, and rate BRC and Friends. You can also watch an unedited version of this conversation on YouTube and Instagram. As always, you can connect with me on all the socials at B Reyes Chow. So that's at B Reyes Chow. Again, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week on the next episode of BRC and Friends. BRC and Friends was produced, written, recorded, and edited by Bruce Reyes Chow with zero help from his dog Vespa. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow, like, tag, and share on all the platforms via B-R-C-A-N-D-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Thanks for listening to BRC and Friends. All around the world, poverty is stealing choices from kids. It's time to give those choices back. Introducing Chosen, World Vision's new invitation to sponsorship. For the first time, kids have the power to choose their own sponsors. Now the choice is theirs. The choice to take hold of their future. And even the choice to step into a life-changing relationship with you. Learn more at worldvision.org chosen. When you have a problem, Box 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard. We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on. How can Box 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com.